this study was also echoed in the risk study found about 90% of people's inverse relationship to that mechanical stress was the opposite movement. So the person that flexes their knee a lot, they needed to extend their knee a lot. So if you hear that in history and you can confirm that there's knee derangement, you don't have to move someone for three hours or for three weeks to find directional preference. You might get there very quickly, which was interesting. Welcome to PT Pro Talk Podcast. I'm Mariana Tondo, your host for today. In this episode, Dr. Joseph Macio is going to talk about his study, Directional Preference of the Extremity. Dr. Macio is a physical therapist, holds a diploma in the McKenzie Method, and has several publications in the application of MDT in the wrist, ankle, hip osteoarthritis, and after failed cervical fusion. I hope you enjoyed the show. PT Pro Talk Podcast, the fastest way to increase your knowledge with the brightest minds of physical therapy in your pocket. Hi, Dr. Massey. Welcome to PT Pro Talk. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. So let's start talking a little bit about your background. So just tell us a little bit about your career and how did you get to where you are right now? Sure. Um, yeah, so I'm originally from uh, Troy, New York, which is uh, a mid-state in New York, and um, went to physical therapy school in New York City at Downstate Medical Center and graduated in um, 2008. And um, the first clinic I worked at was a, re a really good clinic that had a lot of good skilled clinicians. <clears throat> and um, Actually, the first course that I ever took was a mulligan course. That was my first introductory to continue education, which I, I appreciate and like. Um, but my, um, the clinic actually it was interesting. They brought in Stephen Hefner, um, faculty with MDT, to teach part A for the whole clinic. So everyone that worked there learned um, MDT at the same time, at least most of them. Some of them had a previous background with it. Um, So that was kind of my first formal introduction to um, MDT. Although my father is actually also an MDT diplomat. We're the only father and son diplomat. So I had him kind of in my That's ear cool. for a while about <laughs> it so that he was really my first um, exposure to what MDT was and how it worked. And it was really interesting because when I was a new clinician coming out of PT school, I didn't feel like my patients were having great success and getting better and doing what you know I learned in school and it was frustrating and I was maybe kind of second guessing the profession that I, I, I chose or it was frustrating or maybe I just was new and whatever um, and I would talk to him on the phone just anecdotally and be like telling him about a patient and there's one guy and he was like oh yeah you just you just got to go lateral on Lateral arm, what are you talking about? And I did, and this guy got better. And I was like, You picked that up over a phone call? Are you kidding me? So I could see how powerful it was and how diagnostic it was, even with a little bit of information. Um, so that really piqued my interest. And um, then it coinciding with taking part A and exploring MBT um, made me even more interested in wanting to pursue it. Um, And then, yeah, I'd work with, I worked a couple other places and then wanted to really explore MDT to the highest level. So I moved back to where I was from, Troy, New York, and worked with my father, which I thought would be like a few months to max a few years. And I just saw how quickly and exponentially um, I was growing professionally and, and could learn from him. So I ended up staying way longer than that over 10 years um and it was it was a great experience and we got a lot done including this research and a lot of other um really exciting mdt accomplishments so um yeah and then i i i got certified pretty quickly and then became a diplomat in 2013 and um through um through the texas program in austin with Chris Chase and Scott Herbawe and Kim Green, who are all excellent. Um, if you ever had a chance to work with them, they're incredible instructors um, and mentors. Um, 
And then when I graduated, I was doing a lot of stuff in their in our clinic, running an MDT student, student program, um, running grand rounds for clinicians that work there and trying to make sure all of our patients were getting the highest level of care that we could um, offer. And then kind of to fill like a void, you know, I felt kind of like I was for years going to school and continue, you know, pursuing continuing education. And I was like, what am I supposed to do now? Um, I, I, when I was in the program, I, the, the gentleman that I lived with and did it with in Austin was very much into research. I was very much just a clinician and didn't care that, that much about research at the time and was like, who cares about that? Whatever. Like, and so we, we, we matched well and rubbed off on each other well. Um, we complemented each other's lack of certain things, I suppose. And so when I finished, he started doing research and I started doing research. And um, I was like, I thought it was kind of crazy at the time. A lot of it, there, there weren't many, there was maybe a shoulder and a TMJ um, extremity case report that was published. And I was like, that just seems crazy because it's applicable to everything. I see it affected with everything. It's a bit more confusing, I thought, as an early clinician. Um, and I just, I guess I wanted to fill that void and, and, and um, have a new challenge for myself. So I was, a, I had the goal to then kind of try to publish um, every unpublished extremity. So we went out to publish um, research on the elbow, on the wrist, on the ankle, on the hip. Um, and the study that we'll be talking about is an all-encompassing study on how to predict spinal referral to all of those joints, as well as detect um, patterns within the peripheral uh, joints and in, within derangement syndrome and how to find directional preference more easily with that, which is a continuation of the wrist study that we did. Um, so. Yeah, awesome. That's probably enough, right? <laughs> that was a good summary of everything. Uh, so that's cool that you started having this interest for research because I feel like most clinicians don't like research very much. Um, it seems that way that people are either very good clinicians or very good researchers, and the, yeah. the clinicians aren't good at research, and the researchers aren't good at being good clinicians. So it ends up being poor randomized controlled trials that show poor efficacy. So I, I think. <laughs> I can bridge that gap, hopefully, or try to. So I, I, I think I've done so in, so far in what, in what we published. Awesome. Um, so our go today is discuss one of your studies, so the directional preference of the extremity. Yes. So let's just dive a little bit deeper on that study and tell us how that worked, how, how it was, what were your goals, and just give us a... Yeah, so when so on on um one of the latter studies, it was a similar um a similar study designed to direct which is the same name, I don't know why. That just seemed to make sense, but it was directional preference of the wrist of preliminary investigation. And that was just um nineteen consecutive wrist patients and we tried to predict um associations with matching directional preference to derangement syndrome and just looking at the classification of consecutive um um patients and it was it was the first of its kind and it was the highest prevalence rate that had ever been published um at a 79% derangement rate in consecutive risk patients and um found four really interesting variables that i think make it a lot easier to to elicit directional preference and in that study we ended up finding a lot of interesting loading strategies and um some patterns that just made sense and made it easier to find. So, you know, comparatively, the previous research was showing between like a 20 and 40% prevalence rate in, in derangement syndrome in, in the periphery. And you know, anecdotally, I was like, it's not at all what I see. It's way more similar to spine in 70 to 80% range. And it was unclear why that was. Um, and within that study, we theorized a, a couple different reasons. So when that was published, it was kind of like, well, is this applicable to every every joint and, and the rest of you know the periphery? So that kind of led to this study um, because it was really interesting. And in and, and, and going through that study, 
I started to see different patterns and recognize different patterns and think differently about my history in the in the peripheral joint and um anecdotally it, it made sense and i was i was seeing it i was seeing those trends and variables um elicit directional preference so i was like i i think it, it is let's try to do a study on everything um so yeah it was just a continuation of that to try to get more patients and see if um, it was applicable to periphery and also what we didn't do in the risk study um, was try to predict if there is spine referral because we also see a high prevalence of spine referral to isolated peripheral pain people that have specific pathoanatomical you know lateral epicondalgia that is referred for the neck a rotator cuff tear that's completely referred from the neck carpal tunnel syndrome that's completely referred from the neck or thoracic spine. And um, so we wanted to try to look and see if we could find association or some indicators that it might be of benefit to screen the spine in a much more thorough way. Yeah. Some of the results were really crazy. I was like, I want to talk about that. The, that was the, the amount of patients that were referred with a diagnosis of like as you said, uh, a rotator uh, tear, rotator cuff tear, or like any of these this pathological models that were quickly reversed. So for me, that number was crazy. I think it was 71 or 70 something percent. Yeah, I, very I wrote it down. One of the scariest things was there was a major, a much larger error rate in orthopedic referral. I'm kind of jumping ahead, I guess, but while we're on the topic, it was, a, I think, a 71, and I'll refer back to it when we get into that, um, but I believe it was a 71% error rate in someone that was referred from an orthopedic surgeon or orthopedic specialist in, in that it, they would come in with knee arthritis, and it was, yeah, 71%, and it was um, spine referral. You know, and I talked on another podcast um, about that error rate, and and, and, the, and and I think that this is probably one of the biggest things I think for the study is that the more grand implications of it is that you know that person goes to traditional PT with spine referral, does a bunch of quad sets and rides a bike and walks on a treadmill, they don't fix their spine problem. They're referred back to ortho, and if they're a certain age in America, at least I don't know how it is in Brazil, you probably seen some discrepancy or difference in how fast things move in America. But in my experience, that person can be lined up for a knee replacement within mm -hmm. a week. You know, yeah. I've had plenty of patients that have had a knee replacement. They're no better and they have a spine referral. And it's, you know, that that is wild because that's a major surgery. It's wildly expensive and it's a huge um, issue that isn't addressed in the current orthopedic world, which is, why this study and Richard Rosedale's Expos study, and there's a Japanese study about that, I'm forgetting the author's name, <clears throat> um, are so important because if you miss that, you're never going to get the person better if you don't find out what the pain generates. Yes, absolutely. I just had a patient three weeks ago. It was hip pain, couldn't walk more than eight minutes. And then it was on the first day assessment, sustained extension. He walked this last three weeks. He hasn't felt any hip pain and i was like the the referral the doctor said i don't remember the diagnosis but it was something on the hip i don't know if it was just hip pain or labral or something and i feel it's just how many patients that we missed in the system and i don't i don't know how we can um change this culture and especially they are the orthopedics they are the ones that have the, the final word so i just think that's insane like how the system is broken it's really wild to see. I mean, it's been, well, not unfortunately, but it's been kind of, that's very common for me as it was yes. the old clinic that I was in with my father. You know, we were kind of the specialists in the area that were known for fixing complex problems. So a lot of people would come to us with failed PT, with failed surgery, with all these things. But in hearing that, it reminds me of probably, you know, that first job that I had where I was doing traditional PT. I, I remember this 
really angry French woman. It was, I was in New York City on the Upper East Side. People are very demanding. They want everything better yesterday and they don't care, you know. And this woman had a, pu- a pubic uh, ramus fracture. And I'm like, I don't know, what, what am I supposed to do with that? I'm doing all the traditional PT stuff. And she just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. And after I took the MDT um, A course there, I was like, I guess I'll just look at her spine. And I was not confident at all doing that to an orthopedic diagnosis from a surgeon. And I'm 25. I don't know anything yet. You know, and I'm like, I just I think I was just honest with her. I was like, yeah, I just took this course. Do you want to try something different? You're not getting better. We might as well see. And she comes in the next day and she just walked like 20 blocks and she like hugged me. And was like, I can't believe this. I don't have pain anymore. I'm like, are you serious? Like, what? <laughs> what? How? And she's like, that weird move you gave me. I'm all better. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm like, huh. And at that point, and then I started realizing that the orthopedic world often has it wrong and it was terrifying to see that and so you know that though all of that those experiences led to me wanting to be able to um, explore mdt and facilitate it and at the highest level which is well i guess what i'm still striving for i don't want to say i'm the highest level because i'll get in trouble with the institute probably but <laughs> i've worked pretty hard to be good at it <laughs> Um, and so let's talk about the other results yeah. that you, you had, um, some final referral projections. Maybe I'll just walk through a, a little bit more of the study and then get into the results. If that's, if that's okay. Yes. Yes. So, perfect. So basically we, we looked at 37 consecutive patients, um, that just came through our door business as usual. We didn't try to elicit patients for the study. We asked them to sign time consent to use their information. Um, but didn't um, use their name or anything like that. So, and didn't alter care in any way. Um, so it wasn't like a randomized control trial or anything like that. We just treated them as we normally would. And so it was patients that came in with a peripheral medical diagnosis from a referring doctor, nurse practitioner, chiropractor, midwife, whatever, um, or in in my old place of work, Masseo Physical Therapy, we usually would trend around 50% of if, if the business has been there for 35 years and people just know it really well. And we have a lot of people that self-refer themselves because they've either had a positive experience there previously or um, know of us through friends or family or referred from yeah, a similar source like that. So it was people that had a specific medical diagnosis or um, thought that they had a peripheral problem. So they came in, I have a wrist problem, and they it's isolated wrist pain um, and didn't have a medical diagnosis. And there's, there's an interesting chart in the study that shows all of the patient's medical diagnosis, MDT classification, and directional preference. And I think it's just helpful to see, like, mm-hmm. for especially younger clinicians, like, you know, hip bursitis, huh, that can be a derangement or, you know, there was um, second metatarsalgia that with edema that got better with spinal movement. And it's it's like, really, that can get better that way? You know, to me, even still, that seems foreign. I know it can happen, but I'm like, it's an odd thing to witness. So for new clinicians, I think that's really helpful to connect the, what they may see on a script and say, well, there's this study that shows that that can happen. So we intentionally did that for that purpose. Um, so anyway, I was working with another student uh, um, of mine that um, was part of the MDP-specific student program, and she helped a lot um, of the treatment and um, structuring of the study and everything, and was, was really smart in the research, so that was helpful. I really like it, just interrupting you really quick, to see the movements of each derangement like the shoulders, reflection, internal rotation, external rotation. It was just interesting to see all the different like directions and movements that that were effective on the derangement. So I think that was really like cool and helpful. And as a as a young clinician, I used to love reading case reports and case series for that specific reason too to see what are other people doing. You know, a lot of times 
this wasn't that large of a study with 37 patients, although it felt that way to me, and it's been my largest study. Um, but a lot of times the clinical end of a study like that gets lost and you can read it and get all these results, but then to go to the clinic on Monday, you don't, you, you might have this idea like there's more spine referral, but how did you get there? You know? So I think that having that, and that's always been a theme of my studies to, you know, being primarily striving to be a very good clinician. Um, I've always tried to tried to heavily embed that within the, within the research component so that you can read it and get it. In the risk study, we did a, a specific case. We put all the directional preferences in there, but put one specific case study within a case series so that you could read it, which was the most interesting one, and get the clinical reasoning from it, get the differential on it, figure out how the thought process of why we would alter the loading strategies, how much we did, how much force we put through, how much time we spent on each thing, which again, I think for a, um, a new MDT clinician, sometimes the semantics of all that or the, um, the, how it actually works on a, from, from day to day is lost. And I, I think that's important because you could test something for 10 reps, didn't work. And then move on and you missed and you missed it because you needed to do it for 48 hours or 72 hours or so all of this is meant to kind of help people understand that better i think that's super helpful especially the ones that we work by ourselves you don't interact with many clinicians you don't discuss many cases so i think that was really cool exactly well thank you i'm glad that you appreciate it um so yeah, so let's get into let's go get into the, the results a little bit. So we looked at 37 consecutive patients. Um and there's some information just on, you know, it we and we sometimes move people up to 50 times to elicit directional preference. We were using mobilization and overpressure day one if we were suspected derangement and we're looking for confirmation. Um, one thing that I thought was interesting that we did this in the risk, we were searching for the, the most reductive directional preference. So we were attempting to get abolishment of all pain day one, if we could. So we ended up moving people more probably than usual um, because of that, which I think led to a lot of different interesting loading strategies, especially in the risk study. <clears throat> there was a lot of new for me and I think for most people loading strategies that were elicited at the wrist. In this study, most of them are I think were fairly straightforward, at least from my perspective. Um, but anyway. So to elicit directional preference, we were we we cited other research. Um, we wanted a, at least a two point change in pain, at least a 50% change in uh, range of motion or functional baseline so you know pain was the main driver um and we set the uh, much a much higher change in function functional change and movement change because i've just seen people get a little bit of movement change out of something and be all excited about it and think they're on it and then it's incorrect and then you know they might miss the, they might completely miss the classification because that person comes back to better you know it, and like from a general PT standpoint, you can stretch anything a little bit and get moved better. Um, so I wanted that to be significant if there wasn't pain reduction, because not everyone had pain reduction. And sometimes it was just a movement change or a functional change. Um, so I think that's also kind of important. And then the variables um, that we looked at were prediction of peripheral derangement. So these were people with that we confirmed had an elbow derangement or a knee derangement, and we wanted to try to figure out what is their directional preference. We monitored mechanical stress, directional vulnerability, painful movement, and obstructive movement. So mechanical stress was something that they did a lot. So like, for instance, a knee, let's say someone that exercises a lot and bends their knee a lot and sits all day at work and flexes their knee a ton in their life. This study was also echoed in the risk study, found about 90% of people's inverse relationship to that mechanical stress was the opposite movement. So 
the person that flexes their knee a lot, they needed to extend their knee a lot. So if you hear that in the history and you can confirm that there's knee derangement, you don't have to move someone for three hours or for three weeks to find directional preference. You might get there very quickly, which was interesting. And not something that in the peripheral joints and spine, we, we, we talk about all, all that all the time with posture and provocative movements. But in the periphery, I didn't really think about it that way. I had some kind of previous to this, I had some moves that seemed to work a lot and I just tried them. And, but I found myself testing people more and moving people more. It was more frustrating for me, more frustrating for the patient because most people don't want to be moved around more than they need to, especially if it's uncomfortable. And then the variables that we looked at for spinal prediction were <clears throat> detectable peripheral movement loss, um, detectable spinal movement loss, paresthesia. And this, these next ones are a little confusing, I think, um, yeah, but are relevant because they, they ended up being um, associated with, with spinal um, referral. So we looked at pain at rest, constant pain, intermittent pain with re at rest and intermittent pain um, with or intermittent symptoms without pain at rest. So for instance, that last one would be like, if you just move your shoulder and there's a painful arc at 90 degrees and then there's no other pain, it never lasts, never lingers. It's just, you know, that, so I didn't used to think about that either, but, but there was some connection as we get into the results of that. So in, so in evaluating all of these patients and tracking all that data with them, we inputted it into an Excel sheet and did secondary analysis on it and ran statistical measures on it to um, find association. And so 37 patients, the original provisional classification, there were, were 12 extremity derangements, no articular dysfunctions, no contractile dysfunctions, 14 spinal derangements, and then there, in the other section, there was two traumas, um, one post-surgical patient, and eight inconclusive, so a total of 11 and other. After, after testing, either day one or um, a lot of these people ended up changing over the course of 24 to 70, 72 hours, probably a couple, maybe within a week, had a change in classification. And so the extremity derangement went from 12 to 16. Articular derangement went from zero to one. We had no contractile dysfunctions. Spinal derangement went from 14 of provisional classification to 17. And then the two, the two, the two traumas stayed the same, the post-surgical stayed the same, and the eight inconclusives all changed into, this two, into the in either extremity derangement or spinal derangement. And there was one left as inconclusive. Um, so the the total numbers uh, or the total percentages on that were, um, I'm gonna have to refer back to that, but but basically 89, 80, yeah, 89% of all of them were either a spinal or peripheral derangement, which is a ton. You know, everybody's a derangement basically in this in this sample and then it was 45 percent spinal and then 43 percent peripheral so both pretty high um and let's see yes 87 percent actually did have um a pathoanatomical diagnosis from a medical specialist and yeah, which 45% of those were uh, spine referral. Um, and that kind of echoes that 71% of 71% error rate within the orthopedic referral. And interestingly, only a 16% error rate in the primary referral, which I, I don't find typically that primaries find spine problems more. I don't know why that was, but I think I would think they would be kind of equal because I don't necessarily think most primaries that I work with at least are better at detecting if there's a spinal problem. But given these numbers, that that was it. So then, if we look at those numbers, um, 
And, you know, the main probably point of this study, some of the bigger numbers to predict spine referral or bigger um, components to predict spine referral were if there was no detectable movement loss. So if you range a shoulder and it's exactly the same as the other side, there's no obstruction of movement. It was a 73% chance that that was spine referral. So that's, that's really interesting to me. This, it was just referenced in a case series. Um, I believe the author's name is Joseph, Joseph Hathcock, where he found the same thing in a study that he published with a patient that there's no, no movement loss. And he referenced the study, which I thought was really cool and exciting to see. Um, and I, I see that often. Some exceptions at the knee, I've seen a lot of patellofemoral arrangements where you, it, it appears there's no movement loss. Um, and at the elbow, I've seen a few. And actually in our elbow study, the first um, study that I ever published, <clears throat> we get into kind of the patho-anatomical model of how that could happen. And there's multiple studies that reference joint displacement, the different pieces of articular tissue that can get entrapped within the joint space. Mercer and Bogduck talk about that. Depart is another study that talks about that. And even back to the 1930s with the with Dr. Persilis Mills, um, he was also, he was the first one to, to, to kind of treat successfully tennis elbow through the Mills manipulation and had a lot of success with it. And he had dissected some of these elbows, I, I guess, um, and found that there was a ligament that would get displaced under the extension, other, under the extension tendon. And I was, there was a patient within that case series that we, he originally had movement loss and didn't. And we ended up using a similar technique to, uh, the Mills manipulation, which tautened the extensor tendon so that it compressed the exterior of the joint space. Um, and it was just a really interesting connection from what potentially is happening anatomically and how we're addressing that clinically and how that kind of challenges that within the MDT system, I think it's still that you should have movement loss in the peripheral joint to confirm a rule in a joint derangement. But there's some exceptions, at least from what I've seen and, and, um, and published now. So, but it's more common that there's no, there's no movement loss of the joint. I think it, it's, I think it is smart to test the spine for 20 mm. to 48 hours, even yes. if you don't think it is or, or the person doesn't think it is. Yeah. Just uh, commenting about what you said before about the number of patients that had the pathoanatomical diagnosis and that 45, almost 46% had isolated extremity pain. Uh, generation exclusively from the spine. So just how big is the, the, the error on like referring to a specific part and then that specific part not fitting on that model being actually like a derangement, for example, of the extremity and, um, and a lot of those coming from the spine. So like, I think it's a lot of, uh, chances that you have to miss the diagnosis for the patient. So you have to first go and assess and then a lot of them coming from the spine. So I just think it's crazy like that this model, like the, the, the patient that's coming for us, like has a lot of chances of not getting that right. Because looking at these big numbers that you just found. So I think that's, it is that's insane. And, you know, and, and that's not just something that I'm finding that's now there's been multiple studies that are finding around a similar rate in the forties and expo study in the forties and the NEOA study that it's spine referral. Um, and I, I, and I haven't tried, I didn't track it in this, this way and I haven't tracked it formally, but I see typically a descending prep prevalence as you move more distally in, in the periphery. So I see a lot of hips that are spine. I see a lot of shoulders that are spine. I don't see that many wrists or um, ankles or toes that are spine, but I see it. And, you know, as we get into some of these other um, 
variables that are predictive of spinal fill, I think that can make it more easy for people to to detect. But you know, in, I mean, in some of the in some of these people, I, I, the medical diagnosis you you evaluate the patient, and you're like, you have a a full-on cervical radiculopathy and you're being told you have a shoulder impingement, like it, it's a complete joke. And it's just because they go, I got shoulder pain, they get x-rayed or MRI'd and you have a special test that's positive and they, they never even ask if they have numbness. So the next variable on there is is reported paresthesia. Um, and that was identified in just over 40% of these people or this patient sample. And which isn't a ton, but it was, there was zero in the peripheral drainages. So that 40% was highly specific in ruling in that spine was present. So anyone that had paresthesia, it was spine. Um, and that's more, I think that's, that's not, that's something that you would probably learn in PT school. That's not mind blowing. Um, but I think re relevant because there are a lot of people that are told to have peripheral nerve entrapments. And I just don't see that a lot. I don't see that the peripheral structures cause paresthesia. Um, detectable spinal movement loss was reported in just over 50% of people. So, or identified in over 50% of people. So if someone had loss of movement with right rotation and a shoulder problem, it, is, it, it, it makes it a lot more likely that there's spine referral or a loss of extension or whatever it may be, which also I think makes um, sense. Um, pain at rest and constant pain, I think were two interesting variables. Most spine problems had pain at rest. So you, you could, you, you do something, it hurts. It may stay painful for 10 minutes. It may stay painful for three hours. It may stay painful for five hours. Uh, very few or much, much less patients had intermittent pain with no pain at rest in the spine. It was like, uh, maybe three or 4%. So most spine problems either had lingering pain that sticks around for a while and or constant pain. And the constant pain is probably a better differential for people because it was under 10% of peripheral derangements that had constant pain. So it was very unlikely to see a knee derangement that reported I have unrelenting pain all day. Move it around. There's usually a, a position or or something that that helps it or hurts it. Um, so if you hear that also on history, or if I hear that on history, I'm screening spine heavily. And in the spine, it was at 55%. So 55% of spine patients had constant pain, and under and in the peripheral joints, it was under 10%. So that was a big discrepancy. That, you know, and if you start to layer these and you get a person without any movement loss, constant pain, that has spinal movement loss, it, we didn't quantify it this way, but it starts to build an even stronger case that this is, this is highly likely spine referral. And even if I'm wrong, we need to test it because if we're wrong, we're going to be doing God knows what for a long time if the pain generator is coming through or not. So I'll often cite those things, not necessarily referring to myself, but to people just so that it's, it takes kind of opinion out of it. And it's like, I don't necessarily want it. So someone that comes in with elbow pain and they start moving their neck around, you can, can sometimes get disagreement with. Um, so I think that's helpful to refer back to the research because it takes, it makes it more objective. And it's like, this is just, this is how, this is following scientific method. And this is what we need to do to help see if we can help you. Um, yes, I, I found that tactic to yeah. be very helpful because mm -hmm. this concept's confusing people. They went to an ortho, they yeah. MRI, they come in. Yeah, it, 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 half of the battle is figuring out how you can, what that person's educational level is, what their motivation is, and how you can connect and educate them on what you're about to do and where this might be coming from. And again, you know, partially this research is to help with that. I think. Yeah. I've done that sometimes, especially like referring to the expo study. So it's like, well, the number of heap that comes from the spine is really big as this study showed. And then I show them, I think that really helps to get their buy-in. So they are more open to like try and understand the process versus we're just trying to explain and we're like, well, but my pain is not there. So I think that really helps us as clinicians using that as a tool 
to help um, explain that to our patients. Absolutely. So next time we, we talk, I'll, I'll be expecting you to be referencing Masio at all with your spine. <laughs> you Absolutely. Were, you were published. I heard Richard, I listened before I listened to Richard Rosedale's study, and I think he implied that he was the first study to predict variables of spine. But we were published in 2018, well before the Expo study. So. <laughs> no feelings hurt. <laughs> No, it's just, it's a very similar study and it found very similar things. It was a much larger sample and, and so, but they complement each other much better. And I think that there's very good numbers in that. I think that connected to this study, you get a little bit more of, um, as you said, you know, some, some clinical, some raw clinical pearls that can help you in finding your actual stuff like that. So, uh, so the constant pain, highly predictive and, and peripheral problems were just much more. Um, intermittent and, and very un unlikely to have um, have pain at rest and or constant pain. So I think those are kind of the highlights on spine. Um, one other interesting thing that was in here was that in the upper extremities um, there were let's see of of all of all of the upper extremity spine referral, um, seventy one percent required some form of thoracic movement, and that wasn't something that I was doing a lot. I used thoracic movements a lot for cervical problems or for problems in you know lower cervical spine or the, the cervical thoracic junction or to get a cervical movement to facil be facilitated better. But I wasn't necessarily testing thoracic movements for peripheral, peripheral referral. And you found in this either, you know, a straight on thoracic movement or thoracic mobilization or combined. I often use a combined movement with cervical retraction extension with thoracic extension that, um, something, something with some form of thoracic was required to elicit directional preference of, of spine referral. And I thought that was really interesting because if all you did was screen the cervical spine, you know, you'd miss 30%, or you'd miss 70, potentially 70% of these people um, with peripheral spine referral. So it's I thought that was a good reminder. Yeah. 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 And this, again, was something that I, you know, I've always used a lot of thoracic movement because I learned that from my father early on. Um, but for some reason, I never considered it to do it in peripheral joints until I got older. Now I'm a lot older and wiser, I suppose. But um, yeah, so that so that was really interesting. And then if we look at the uh, variables that were associated with directional preference of the peripheral um, derangements. And I, this actually, I don't think anyone actually, I don't know, you know, the Expo study is also out there and there's other spine um, publications, but I don't think anyone else has actually tried to predict or find association of um, directional preference in the periphery. So this, so this is a unique thing to this study and to the risk study that I, I, anecdotally I, I see <clears throat> being very um, helpful. So the mechanical stress was the highest associated at 90%. So, you know, the, in the wrist study, the, the, well, there was a high prevalence of people that were doing a lot of wrist extension. And a large amount of those people came from a, a, a gym that did like a lot of exercises that hyperextended their wrists and like just hundreds and hundreds of reps and they all needed flexion. And this study was all over the map, but you know another common theme, and I think a little easier to visualize, is uh, the knee problem. So, for instance, that bend their knee a lot. People, most people sit all day, like you and I are. Right now. As physical therapists, we're kind of up and down, so it's harder to predict um, what excessive mechanical stress may be in, in someone like us. But in a lot of people, they do the same thing over and over and over all day. And if you connect that with insidu insidious onset, which is most people, it's like, well, why, why did, would that happen? And if you start to ask and pluck out what they are, what their body is doing all day, 
you, at least in the study, you have a 90% chance of using the inverse movement to get there. So you can do that very quickly. Day one, you look great, and this is easy. You got to move in 30 different ways. The compliance starts to get negative. You start to lose your confidence. You might lose the patient. They might go get acupuncture or surgery or whatever it is. So, you know, the faster I, I think that you can find this, the better. Same thing with directional vulnerability. That was a little lower um, at just uh, under 80%. And the, basically the same thing. It's just that's their that's something that they report doing. Um, and I thought a really interesting variable that didn't connect as much as I thought it would was the patient's most obstructive movement, you know, and in some joints I see that that often is the case in the knee. I see that a lot, the most obstructive movement is knee extension. And that ends up being the movement that is better. Um, in the ankle, I see that in the more complex joints. I don't see that. Um, a lot of times like in shoulders, flexion might be the most, or abduction might be the most obstructive movement but doesn't end up being directional preference. Um, and in the wrists, it was around also, this was, uh, this was just over 50%. I think in the wrist study, it was, it was at around 45%. And just from an intuitive, I went to physical therapy school standpoint, it, you know, that's what people do. If something's tight, they stretch it. And in a lot of people that, that isn't the case. So I think that's just interesting. Um, maybe it's a little, it's less predictive of what to do, but just something to know that if pursuing only that might not, is likely not to give you the answer. Um, and then connecting the patient's most painful movement, which also as a young clinician, I didn't like to do. It was like, it just felt wrong or I, I felt uncomfortable or I didn't, I didn't want to have to pursue that with a patient. I knew it would be uncomfortable and I just wasn't confident enough to know that that was going to be something that was helpful for them. So in the risk study, it was around also, I think just under 50% of patients with most painful movement that helped them. In this study, it was a lot less. It was, um, yeah, 33. Thank you. And look at that. You know my study better than I do. 2018 was a long time ago for me. Uh, a lot's happened since then. But um, the... I'll reference that a ton too, because there, I, I can't tell you how many patients I will be confident. This is what you need to do. Let's go ahead and do it. And, and they give me a lot of kickback if it hurts. And in reference, referencing that, it's like, look, there's research out there that says half of the people need to do the most painful thing or they're not going to get better. If not doing the most painful thing was going to make you better, you would have done it on your own, you know? So. That also, I think, gives people confidence that it's not just me uh -huh. doing that for some reason. Yeah. But that's what the yeah. data shows. That's what the research shows. And that's out there and that happens. And that also makes people more confident in doing what <clears throat> is going to be helpful. Uh, I think it's just all like good starting points. So you, you know what to start trying, that you have the higher chances of getting right. Yeah. So you don't lose the patient. And for me, it was very interesting to see the, the, as you said, the mechanical stress. So that's sometimes something that I wasn't paying that much attention, like to extremities. The back, I think it's very obviously for us to think this way. But like, as you said, extremity, I wouldn't think about the knee while you were sitting whole day, flexion, so probably extension. Let's try extension first. Sometimes you just pick one way because you don't really associate with anything so i think it was really good to have that as a baseline a starting point and then you go from there so you don't have to test everything you just kind of have an idea of what to try first so i think that's really helpful yeah yeah i agree you know again previously i didn't previous to these those two studies i didn't really think about that either and i had a bunch of movements that seemed to work often and i just kind of resort to them mm -hmm. they were what I was familiar with and, um, you know, it's our numbers, I think in, in, um, prevalence of derangement in the peripheral joint and the spine, I think are so high because we're figuring it out easier and it's not just, 
you know, I cited, I made a joke and were you at the Miami conference? No, I was not. Um, I presented the risk study at the Miami conference and I made a joke about, and I referenced it in the study, but you know, we follow the research at that, if you were following the research at that time, there were only two published directional preference procedures, which is risk extension and all deviation. And if we only used those two movements within our risk sample, we would have only had a 20% prevalence rate for arrangement. So if you follow the research, you'd be nowhere because none of, barely anyone needed those two movements. And I thought that was really interesting too, because it's so new, I, I, I see or think that people just don't know you know what to do or um or, or didn't so I, I think that that was reflected in the previous because there's been an ascending prevalence in in those two centers um percentages through the years starting at 20 percent 40 percent and ours at 79 was the highest of the risk this was lower if you combine spinal and peripheral it was really high 89 percent but you know, 45, um, and if you excluded spine, it would be probably 90% because there was only a couple others in, in the mix. Um, so, yeah, but anyway, I made this joke saying that my father would fire me if he, I was only getting 20% of my patients better. And <laughs> it went over really well, but I'm not as funny as I used to be, so. <laughs> um but yeah i think that i think those are kind of my key takeaways from this and, and the highlights of it you know there's tons of spine referral there's a few variables that are highly pr predictive or associated with spine referral constant pain no per peripheral movement loss paresthesia um and if you have a peripheral derangement, mechanical stress can be very helpful have with using the inverse relationship of it. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Start thinking about those other factors. And then, you know, I think just using this, because as you said, if you're a clinician that works by yourself and you get a large orthopedic referral, it's intimidating to say that they're wrong. And, but it's our job to, so, it, we're, at, we're working under my father in that clinic. We kind of had a situation where that was a reputation for doing that. So there was a bit more of expectation of us to do that. So it made it a little easier, but it was still really uncomfortable for me to have to educate and almost be argumentative at, at times with people. You know, so being able to reference research made it when I started doing that with people, even printing the study out and showing them, or you know, I, I use a lot of different research to educate people. And when I do that, it takes again, it makes it more objective. It takes my opinion out of the matter. And I'll, you know, I agree with the surgeon or you, but we need to do this. And if it gets better, then that is what it is. But it happens. Um, I think just coming at it from that angle makes you sound smarter, more thorough, more caring. And makes you less likely to get disagreement. Um, so I just I think that's a helpful thing to hear to clinicians. Yeah, absolutely, and especially like the patients that have this medical diagnosis so strong in their minds, and so my MRI said that, my doctor said that. So I think it's really hard. So that's a good thing that we have in our favor to use. So. Uh, to reference this study. So I really appreciate you doing that for us, for our profession, because that is really helpful because I think it's really hard to argue per se with these patients or um, try to convince them or explain them. So I just think that's so important. So I've, yeah, sure. I've, hey, I've put, our, I've put our family name on the line for everyone. So now if, if, if anyone's mad, it's because Nacio at all said so, I guess. So <laughs> I was getting myself into I hope my father doesn't get any kickback from this or I'll be in trouble. And let's then transition to our final questions. Oh, yeah, that's right. Um, so what is your favorite resource of information? Anything in particular that you like? Um, you know, I think that um, 
the McKenzie Institute does a good job of keeping up with the current reference list in, in terms of uh, they there if you go to their website for McKenzie International, um, and I think it's under resources, they keep a, a fairly current list of new research that comes out that has that either is specifically related to MDT or has a high connection to it. So I think that's an easy starting point for people that are busy that don't want to go through every journal. When I was very much into publishing research, um, more, I, I've had a bit of a lapse um, since my last study that I, I published, but um, I would go through maybe monthly all the different journals that I liked, um, JMT, Spine, JOSPT, um, and then a bunch of other ones, manual therapy. Um, and I would just look, look to see what was new there. Um, so I think that, I think those are two helpful tools. Um, there's a lot of stuff, I guess, on social media and stuff that's always out. I'm not that huge into all that. Um, being so old, that just doesn't connect to me. But, um, it does a lot of work and time. Social yeah, media. Yeah. And there's a lot of misinformation and things like that out there. But, but we used to, when we published all these, I, I I've taken I take I have in my in my profession taken a lot of time to read a lot of research and to try to stay as current as I can, but most people don't. I can't tell you how many people I've met at a conference that are like, "Oh, I heard you had a new study." And I was like, "Yeah, did you read it?" And they're like, "No, I was gonna, but I just never got around to it." And I'm like, <laughs> "People just are busy. That's life." So because of that, with a lot of the beginning studies, we wanted to gain as much exposure to it you know there's thousands and thousands and thousands of studies that are published every year so we did kind of like promotional um summative and like fun videos on youtube of them which gave you a snapshot of what it was showed you some loading strategies and i mean our most popular ones probably have been viewed by like, I don't know, 20,000 people or something, mostly MDT people. And I know for, well, I don't know for a fact, but I would be shocked if 20,000 people read this study. So, you know, there is some value, I think, in that, and that, that that's a quicker, easier way to kind of see. And it was just a way for us to try to get the information out there to the, the busier, easier. busier yes. MDT clinician. Yeah, good. And then... What would be the best advice you give to a clinician that's starting their careers? Huh. Yeah, there's probably so many things. Um, I think that having the, developing the desire to learn more and challenge more, you know, within every patient that we've talked about, it's been a challenge to say, you're not, you don't have knee OA you have spine referral and it, you know, if I looked at myself when I graduated PT school, my prevalence rates of derangement syndrome would be nil or one, that one French woman that I accidentally got better, you know, I didn't get a lot of people better. And I think it's, I think it's a difficult thing for new clinicians to say, what I learned in PT school is wrong and to, to test things this way. I think it's difficult for an old clinician to say for the last 10 years, my patients haven't been getting better because I had the wrong, you know, pain generator. Or I, I didn't have the wrong classification or I didn't even know what the classification was. Uh, so I think that just trying to be confident and, um, humbled in knowing that you might be wrong and, and not being scared to test things to learn more 
Um, that's led to a lot of my success. And it was hard initially because I, testing someone can be uncomfortable, especially if you're not confident in it. But it's led to way, you know, exponentially more people that I've seen get better. So um, that was kind of an indirect answer. But I think that trying, taking continued education, trying to get good mentorship, so that you can learn that, and that was a, that's a that's a large reason for my success in all this. Is fortunately, I had a father that was a diplomat. So if you have a father that's a diplomat, do that. If you don't, try to seek other forms of of of, um, of mentorship because you, you can really expedite. You know, you take a course, you learn something on the weekend, and then you go home. And it's not always applicable. It's like, well, what happens day two? What happens week two? What am I supposed to do now? I, I always found that kind of lacked if you didn't go through the diploma program unless you work with the mentor. So, so just the willingness to be humble that you may be wrong, wanting to challenge things and test them in a, in a, in a more scientific way and, and getting mentorship, whether it's an MDT, whatever you may be exploring, I think. Is, is is probably one of the smartest ways to be successful. Absolutely. And then final question, what personal qualities and abilities that you think are important to become a successful PT? Geez, that's kind of probably my last answer. I, I should have held that. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, to be a successful PT, I'm not so sure about to be a successful MDT clinician. I think you need to be willing to challenge and confidently challenge and scientifically challenge a lot because everything that we just said, 89% you know, percent of what I saw was wrong. So that's crazy. Um, and I think another thing that has helped me greatly is, you know, a lot of my job or our jobs, it's really easy when you get good at it. I could read an eval sheet and say, this person needs to go do this, and that's it. Two minutes, it's done. I can leave and have it figured out. But the hard part is convincing a patient of that. So I think that trying to connect to a patient in a way that you understand what their education level is. I have certain patients that don't need to know anything. Maybe I know them from before. They don't care, they trust me, and I just can do that. Okay, this is what you are, this is what you gotta do, you'll be better in a week. I'll see you in a couple of days to make sure of it. See you later, and that's easy. There's other people that I need to print out this study, I need to go through the statistics, I need to give them a book, I need to do a diagram, they gotta talk to my father, they gotta, you know, and everything under the sun I need to re-educate them on to build confidence. Um, and for a lot of those people, I'll give them the treat your own books to read. Um, cause I, you know, especially where I was before I was very busy and didn't often have time to field all those questions and the amount of time that I had with that person person. And that often, especially in spine problems was very helpful because they, they would then have a better education of what we did and why we were doing it and answer all the questions. And usually they would come back without a lot of questions. Um, so I think that that's a helpful tool in spine referral, but the periphery is not as lay language um, that talks about that. So to give someone this study to read, it's a bit, it might be a bit over their head or whatever, or I don't know. Um, but I think that it's not, and I don't know, I I, this isn't something I hear people talk about a lot, but being a good listener and trying to understand where someone's coming from and, and then how to connect the educational component of what you're doing to what they know. Because if you can get that agreement early on, especially in something less known like this study, you're much more likely to have success. So, you know, just thinking about that and trying to connect that uh, is, 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 I think, a very important quality that has led to a lot of my success. Yeah. It's not enough to just be a good clinician. You have to have a way to transmit that, engage with the patient and get their buy-in to do what you want them to do and be willing to try. So that's Absolutely. a big part of the success. Absolutely. Um, 
So Joe, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to share with us your study. It was very insightful. It was really good. It gave me a lot of insights and I'm sure for a lot of other PTs that are going to listen to us and for some reason, maybe they haven't read the study. So now they have like a, a, a full discussion with the author. So I think that's really helpful. And our goal here is just to share information and help as many people as you can. So I appreciate that you've been doing that, that all the your effort, your research to help us grow and help us improve as therapists. So thank you so much. It was my pleasure. Yeah. And thank you for... Um doing what you do and spreading the word and helping educate people. It's uh, a great service that you're providing. So. Questions, suggestions, or topics you want to hear about, talk to me on ptprotalk.com. Join our email list to receive updates and new episodes and subscribe here. Tell your friends about it and be sure to share. Also, leave us a review and let us know what you think. We are going to publish today's video recording on my YouTube channel, so you can check the link out in the show notes. Thanks for joining us and I'll see you next time.